Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry. Sorry. We're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No. Lucky Land Casino. With cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to Strike Talk. One night in the summer of 1982, director Ted Kotcheff entered a movie theater in the Valley to preview his latest film. It was called First Blood. It starred Sylvester Stallone. The preview was going well. The audience was very much with the movie and its lead character, John Rambo. Then the movie ended, and the crowd was so incensed, it nearly tore the theater down. Every audience response card said the same thing. Love the movie. Hate the ending. See, in that original cut of First Blood, Rambo died at the end. Kotcheff promptly changed that, and the Rambo series went on to make $819 million worldwide. Similarly, if you go on YouTube and type in original ending broadcast news, you'll see the scene that James L. Brooks originally intended to be the final scene of his brilliant, seminal film. In it, believe it or not, William Hurt gets into the cab with Holly Hunter, and they have a huge argument, and then they kiss, and then they wind up together. It's a really good scene, but once it was shot, it told Brooks something critical. Put this ending in, and the entire movie no longer makes a bit of sense. Broadcast news has a very strong central idea. You can't love someone you don't respect. That theme is in every line of the movie. So Holly Hunter can't wind up with William Hurt, or the whole movie is invalidated. The same is true of the original ending of Fatal Attraction, in which Glenn Close kills herself with a knife that has Michael Douglas's fingerprints on it, and then he goes on trial for murder. Nope. Audiences hated that. What does this tell us? It tells us that a movie is like a war. No matter how they start, what matters is how they end. You have to stick the landing. It's true in all walks of life. In the 1996 Olympics, American gymnast Carrie Strug had torn cartilage in her ankle, but she knew if she could somehow gut her way through one last vault exercise, her team would win the gold. She did so, literally sticking the landing. Most Americans know Jackie Robinson for forever changing baseball and our country by breaking the color line. But his final act as a Dodger is something that I will always revere him for. The team had traded him to the hated New York Giants, and rather than play for a rival, Robinson quit the game. That, too, is sticking the landing. Jimmy Carter, who just turned 99, had a one-term presidency that ended with a landslide loss to Ronald Reagan, leaving his political career in ruins. Then he spent the next 43 years utterly redefining what an ex-president can be and redefining his legacy in the process. He wrote three books, personally built 3,944 homes in 14 countries as a part of Habitat for Humanity's international effort to provide affordable housing. He won a Nobel Prize and a fucking Grammy. In short, he nailed the ending. Track coaches tell their athletes, 
Don't look at the finish line. Look beyond the finish line. Run through the finish line. That's what the negotiating committee of the WGA just did. 146 days into a strike, when they had every right to claim exhaustion and take an average deal from the AMPTS, that committee, like the membership it represented, instead dug in for one last push and won a deal that may very well have saved our business. This is the opposite of what the NFL's Atlanta Falcons did in the 2017 Super Bowl. Up 28-3 over the New England Patriots with just 23 minutes to play, they collapsed in spectacular fashion and lost 34-28, the biggest meltdown in Super Bowl history. They played brilliantly for two and a half quarters, flawlessly. Think anyone remembers them fondly for that? Of course not. We define ourselves at the finish line. That is what SAG now needs to remember. SAG and the AMPTS have restarted their negotiations, and there is every reason to believe that the alliance is serious about making a deal. But there is also every reason to believe that the alliance will not volunteer a penny more than SAG demands. If SAG will accept a lousy deal at this moment, then that is what SAG will get, and we all will lose. One of the issues on the table, of course, will be AI. AI and its use is part of what drove SAG to strike. It is an existential threat to actors and background artists everywhere. In a negotiation loaded with landmines, AI may be the most explosive. SAG simply must win protections here. Failing to do so would leave its members and the business more broadly susceptible to ruin. I hope that union's negotiating committee will remember that. Their courage and commitment in striking was the critical factor in making the AMPTS see the folly in its strategy concerning the WGA. They have more power than they know. We're in the fourth quarter now, the ninth inning, the 50th day of a 50-day shoot. Success and failure are both very real possibilities. That outcome will be determined solely by how these negotiations end. It's time for what Lincoln called the last full measure of devotion. Time to run through the finish line. Time for Ann Archer to dispose of Glenn Close and make the audience erupt with cheers. Time for Kerry Strug to eat the pain and win the gold. Time for Jackie Robinson and Jimmy Carter to go out on their own terms with a forever kind of dignity. When a movie isn't good enough, we do reshoots. When a contract isn't good enough, we demand a better one. Either way, we honor our hard work by finishing strong, by writing an ending that's worthy of our tireless effort and sacrifice, because ultimately, it doesn't matter who drew first blood. All that matters is who sticks the landing. To discuss that with me, I have Dr. Rahman Chowdhury and my dear friend Alex Winter, who is a SAG member, but it turns out has also made half a dozen documentaries and is quite an expert on AI itself. Welcome to you both. Thank you. It's good to be here. Thanks for having me. So let's dive in. How big of an existential threat does it remain to your grill? Um, well, I'm on all three unions and have been, because I'm old, for a very, very long time. I've seen a lot of labor crises over several decades. And I think that we've hit, uh, one of the things that was positive um, was that this crisis is so giant and has been so long time coming that it created solidarity unlike we've ever seen before in our industry especially being a member of DGA, WGA, and SAG. And I work equally across all three of those unions all the time. Uh, SAG specifically, it was evident pretty early on with, with the actors, uh, where it was fuzzier, I think, for the writers and the directors, was that you began to see actors getting replaced by you know AI-generated versions of their voice or likeness. And I had actors who were very worried about Unreal Engine and other kind of gaming technologies going back a ways now, um, or coming to me and saying, you know, a director put a tear in my eye when I didn't cry. Again, they may be calling that AI. That's really a, C a CGI issue, but it kind of falls under the same fear, right? Of 
of, as you said, studios or other people in power who have control over the artists. Because you know James Old Jones doesn't own his Darth Vader voice, right? Um, and Mark Hamill can either be brought in to be Luke Skywalker, or in a recent case, they could opt to not hire Mark and they could just create an AI version of Luke and use that instead, which they did. Or in the case of Stephen Fry last week, some company had sucked up all of his uh, audiobook reading of a Harry Potter series and then used that to train an AI to create narration for a documentary, and that didn't either pay him or credit him. So these are these are just teeny weeny little issues that are going on now which you know aren't teeny if they're happening to you but obviously we're we're half step away from from these becoming much larger issues which leads us to kind of what you said which is who's in control of it how do you retain or maintain control of it is that even possible um as we're entering an age where the quantification of the worker is becoming such a prevalent issue right where people are losing their benefits their ability to earn a living wage where the general drive of monopolized companies is towards devaluing the worker. I think the actors are a good way to make the, those threats clear to the public because they're so easy to understand and say, look, this is happening to us. This is absolutely going to be happening to you. So there's two things that I love about what you said. One is that we've been living in like we and I, I say like my specific world of people who work on the impact of artificial intelligence. Right? We've been living in a very speculative world. So people have been talking about the impact of AI on the workforce, labor market, et cetera, for a very, very long time. And a lot of it's been coming out of the World Economic Forum, literally sitting on top of a mountain in the chalet in Switzerland, discussing how the pores will operate. <laughs> uh, but it, we, this is the first time we've seen the rubber hit the road. And, and this is like a great leading indicator, and it's going to set the tone. This is like the New Hampshire Right of of how it's going to be for the rest of us, the way how you know how primaries go in New Hampshire kind of seed the vibe and the tone for the rest of the primary elections. It's this is going to be the same thing. And I think what's been really great is you have an audience that is very very good at articulating to other people because you all are writers, actors. Like your job is to articulate things to others. I have literally used Fran Drescher's SAG-AFTRA speech. As a reference in multiple audiences, so specifically, uh, I was giving like a closed door session to a group of senators, and I brought it up, and I said, like, I have seen no clearer articulation of the risks of artificial intelligence to a specific industry than I saw in that speech by friend Joshua Tu, like uh, on behalf of SAG-AFTRA. And this is like I'm on seven years of being in an industry where people with very fancy PhDs have discussed the economic impacts of of AI. I think this is the first time we're seeing that negotiation have to happen. The other thing I'll add, Billy, to your point earlier about not wanting to use it as a writer, I think there's often a misunderstanding of what's going to happen with AI. One of the concerns is because artificial intelligence produced media will be so cheap to make in like pennies, like half, like fractional pennies to produce like a book, right? People will be writing script, people like, frankly, studios or publishing houses will be writing books, scripts, et cetera that are frankly garbage. So what's going to happen to the average individual consuming media, and I think some of us literally feel this right now with the streaming wars, is that we can't parse out what is good and bad because we're just inundated with yet another reality show or yet another you know, trashy romance novel that is just AI generated in the style of person X or author Y. And in some cases, like it's very comfortable. You have a trashy beach read, you know what the plot's going to be. But in other cases, like, 
and again, this is where it gets like existential. Like, what have we done to like push forward this field, this profession? And, you know, you all are people who take great pride in what you do and you don't want to see your work being frankly insulted because 99% of stuff on the market is going to be some mass produced garbage. It seems to me that every company that is currently developing large language models, open AI, is being sued right now for copyright infringement. Why do you think that is and what can be done about it? I don't know how successful a lot of the copyright suits are going to be. Um, and I don't believe that there is a, an ability to control what AI tools ingest. Um, I think that we have to learn to... Uh, we have, there are ways to regulate, and and I'll obviously throw this back to Ramon. Um, uh, and I think Lena Khan, chair of the FTC, has been very good on this stuff. And I think her op-ed from May in the New York Times is well worth read for people about uh, what we can actually accomplish here. Um, but I think that copyright was not really constructed for this purpose. Um, if, if you want to try to dismantle it and rebuild it for artists, I mean, good luck with that. It's really designed for industry and to protect industry will most likely continue to protect industry. Um, I don't know how successful a lot of those. I don't think the Authors Guild should, I'll be very surprised to see if that succeeds. The last one that they that they did, which is very similar against Google for their books, did not succeed. Um, so I think that we're in a period where there's a lot of anger. A lot of people are showing rocks all over the place. Um, but I think that there are, there are some realities that we have to, to accept about the way corporations work and monopolies work and how powerful these tools are and how much they ingest and how much they will continue to ingest. And even if we construct laws that says, say, Google's AI is not allowed to ingest X, I'm telling you they are going to do it anyway, because that's how they work. Can there be laws in place, Alex, that will require Google to use ethical AI? In other words, AI that actually attributes sources. I have a friend who works at a company he's been working at for over 20 years, um, whose job it was, and he had offices all over the world, to hoover down everybody's speech from through their laptops for Google in order to improve their their voice to speech recognition software. That is actually against the law. That company is not allowed to be public. No one knows the name of it. Everyone gets paid lots of money. I do not believe you will be able to stop large tech monopolies from doing things they want to do to remain competitive. Yeah, I mean, I can I can contribute a bit to that. So to your original question, the economic model of Silicon Valley, the fundamental way it works is by taking data. So the currency at Silicon Valley is data. So when we think we're getting an app for free or something for free, our definition of paying for things is not their definition of paying for things. They do not care about money. They care about data. Uh, so Alex is totally correct. Like what is of value to them is literally not my $1.99 to buy an app. It's the fact that that app is free and in the agreement to download the app and use it, we've pretty much said, yeah, do whatever you want with anything I do on this app. And also ancillary things like, oh, we're going to pull your location from your phone. And, you know, we may even install a way to, you know, track your contacts. You know, all, all these things that we did not know are built into a lot of the tech that's being built. And it's fundamentally because the economic model is built on data acquisition and data use and selling data, et cetera. So Alex is correct in that, like, even if there were, like, even if, um, let's unpack this idea of even having a law, what would this law even say? And here's the problem. So as these large language models are made, right, this is like a huge aggregation of, they would say, all of the knowledge, I'm doing like scare quotes here, all of the knowledge of humanity, which is untrue because it's everything that's on the internet, which is definitely not all the knowledge of the world. But let's just say it's all of this stuff, right? Um, 
can you attribute whether a particular building design came from some individual? And again, then, then we fall back into this like world of privilege. So like Stephen King would be able to say, you stole my stuff because he's Stephen King and he's a very specific writing style and he has written many books. He's a well-known name, but that is not protecting an up and coming writer who is kind of a nobody whose stuff exists online because he or she is trying to be seen and heard and read, right? So the people I worry about, even in creating this idea of attribution, is no, like, this will still benefit the people who are the most well-known in your world, but it will not benefit the people who are the least well-known. So if I'm just like a random somebody on the internet, and I make cute artwork, and I stick it on the internet, and I say, your language or your image model scraped my stuff off the internet, and I know because you say this is the way you do. And they're like, great, prove it. I actually cannot prove it. Because my style will probably, like, I'm not, like, not everybody's, like, for the tinge die. Not everybody is has this, like, very specific, unique style. Most of us, and this is just how art works, builds on, builds on other people's styles, et cetera. It takes a while to find a voice. It will be near impossible to say, this is my attribution to your large language model, and I deserve to be paid or get some sort of compensation or pull my data out. The other part I'll say is, like, the best like visual I can give of it is to say, what is the value of one drop of water in the Pacific Ocean? Like negligible, but you need all the drops of water to have the Pacific Ocean, right? And that's pretty much how this works. Everyone's stuff is needed to make it happen, but very few people can say, my stuff actually contributed to the overall vision. I can pull out my specific value. So if the Writers Guild has now won, and what the Writers Guild was asking for was we cannot be written by AI and we cannot be asked to rewrite AI. That seems like, at least within one industry, that seems like enough of a guardrail. That's a very different thing than what SAG is asking for, which is um, consent and compensation. So can we talk about that, Alex? I believe these are these are labor negotiation issues more than they are sort of copyright IP issues. Not to say that some people may win because some judges will fall on their side, but it still will be, to Ramon's point, extremely difficult to enforce, even if they do win some of these cases. I've been arguing for quite some time that these are mostly labor contract issues because you can you can create um, a legal sort of binding legal contractual language with an employer, right? If the the studio is an intermediary for AI, the studio doesn't make AI. Right? The studio is, is getting their AI from other companies, which frankly don't even care about the studios and may one day take over the studios, right? They have their own threat level in terms of, because the studios are run, you know, their money is made off of copywritten work. Like They have a bigger copyright cheater than I think artists do on that level. And they probably are asleep at night about it. Um, but, we, but actors and writers, um, and for that matter, the directors can absolutely say, if you're going to use a version, like what happened to Stephen Fry is a perfect example. That's attributable. To Ramon's point, it, it does get tricky because it does, it will accelerate the kind of um, the biases that are implicit, both in corporations or in any system against marginalized groups, minorities, people of color, all of the entire swath of the world that is treated with less equality. It, it will exacerbate that. And AI is by nature biased against those. Tell me how that's true, Ramon. When we fundamentally think about how these language models or any of these AI models are trained, language models are a great example. Like I, I was jokingly saying, like they claim it's built on the knowledge of the world and it's not. It's built on the knowledge of what is online. And specifically like earlier versions of ChatGPT when it was 
OpenAI was actually open, they would share what their data sources were. And it was something like Reddit, Wikipedia, you know, like things like that. All of those data sources are biased. So what is the average Redditor? What is the average Reddit community? How do they speak to, let's say, a person of color or an overweight person or, you know, a, a person who is differently abled? And like, what, how are the, how are these individuals um, communicating on this platform? So like, basically like, how is the language model learning to speak and understand and interact? Wikipedia is actually another great example. A, a friend of mine, Anasunya Sengupta, runs an organization called Who's Knowledge? And the purpose of that organization is to de-Westernify Wikipedia because Wikipedia is the repository of mainly Western knowledge. And on top of that, people like overwhelmingly scientific pages or like individual pages on Wikipedia of women tend to get disputed more than that of men. So mine, for example, gets disputed quite a bit. I have colleagues who are male who have not presumably achieved as much as I have and nobody questions their pages. So there is an implicit bias in this. And then this manifests in what the output produces. So a friend of mine, uh, Sasha Lucioni, she's at Hugging Face. She started this project about the, the the biases in artificial intelligence. So specifically, she would give it a prompt like nurse, and it would overwhelmingly be pictures of women. And of course, you'd always get the, and one of the most well-known examples in the hacker community is something that happened last year when you typed in the word nurse and what you got, and when you typed in the, the words good nurse and what you got. Let me tell you, the good nurses, wildly different from the nurses. So like highly sexualized imagery, et cetera. And again, all women though. In that world, men are never nurses, right? Only women are nurses. Uh, and then, like, and there's a lot of language generation about what pronouns are being used. If you say someone's a teacher, a nurse versus a doctor, an engineer, and this is class. I mean, this goes back like one of the canonical papers of um, uh, language generation and biases is called um, "Woman is to homemakers, man is to engineer," and that's pretty much what early versions. This is not even GPT. This is like baby language models they were already reflecting. Because again, what is the world of knowledge it's built on? It is only a reflection of what we have in society. And in society, we are still fighting these fights, right? To have women being treated the same as men, having people of color being treated the same as people who are white, et cetera. All of that is just reflected in the tech. A friend of mine, she works at the National Institutes for Standards and Technology. is a great way of putting it. She says, we, we wrap our societal problems, we code it in data to make it more digestible. And, and I love that analogy because it's true. Like it seems objective and it seems scary because it's all knowing AI, but it truly is just a manifestation of the issues we know to exist today. So AI inherits and then exponentially multiplies the biases of the internet. The version of chat GPT that came out in the fall, so it's like GPT 3.5, um, a friend of mine was playing around with it and asked it to make a bio of me. And it came out with the weirdest input. So I have a pretty, you know, robust online presence. My online presence is mainly about the work I do, right? All, it's all about artificial intelligence and ethics and, and all of that stuff. And to be perfectly honest, like as a woman in a scientifically technical field, like I'm very careful about how my image is put out there, how I present myself to the world because it is very, very easy for people to like make certain assumptions about you. So tell me why GPT 3.5 generates this bizarre fictional narrative about me, about how I am a social media influencer. Uh, it really was like really big on my appearance. It was kept talking about like, she has really big eyes. It was very, very strange. So it was basically painting me 
as a social media influencer of like the Instagram influencer type. And it was so incredibly gendered and it was bizarre because there is literally no reason. There's nothing about my online presence that would even remotely suggest that like, and there's nothing wrong with being a social media influencer who's like, you know, like a pretty girl, lots of shoes or whatever. And great, like, thanks. I'm glad you think that. But also that's not me. And it was an incredibly gendered assumption that it made. And I don't even know where it got that information because there is like, I have a pretty unique name. There isn't really somebody else. On the, and also my name is actually the masculine version of my name's not the feminine version. Most people have my name is uh, their guys. So it was very weird to see this like whole narrative be produced that was not only wildly wrong, but so very gendered about being given that nothing about my, I specifically curated my online presence, not be about my appearance and not be about, you know, because it's, I'm in an industry that's pretty ruthless to women. So in fact, one of the great dangers of this particular machine is that it exacerbates what is worst in humanity. And of course, the, the fundamental danger of, of the internet, which is where it lives to gain information, is that there's no fact-checking. Contrary to its name, artificial intelligence is not actually intelligent. So these are really tools that, can, that are largely being used for, for fairly bureaucratic and mundane needs, most of which are actually extremely helpful. Um, the concerns and the dangers are that they will be exploited um, by... Uh, corporations and other uh, powered interests that, that share those ideologies, right? That share those oppressive and and that aim towards inequality, devaluing the workforce, turning laborers into gig workers that don't have unions, don't have health care, don't have basic benefits. It's really the weaponizing of these tools by people who will gain more power, more money, um, and more ability to stay in power. By the, by the fact that those tools have those inherent biases and those in, inherent abilities to, to, um, to devalue the workforce. And that's why we struck. Like, in a way, that's what we saw happen with the rise of the streamers, where suddenly, uh, you know, the, the, a large part of the workforce was being devalued and was losing its ability to survive. And that got to a point where, you know, you're sort of people in unions or, or upper middle class, more privileged people were going, wait a minute, I'm, I'm a, a showrunner and I'm on a giant TV show and I'm living out of my car and I'm on food stamps. Like it, it took years to get to that point, right? Where, where the middle and upper middle class went, whoa, 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 what's going on? That wasn't a new thing that happened because of chat GPT. That was years and years and years of the devaluing of the workforce by way of these, these very small monopolies that are controlling so much of that labor force. So to me, what's, what's worrisome about AI is that if you have something that's, that is A, mindless and not intelligent, B, has inherent biases, and then C, is mostly under the control of monopolies that do not value the workforce, that is a recipe for trouble. And I think it, it's the one thing I will say, not to throw cold water on all the incredible work being done now, is I don't think this fight is going to get solved with this round of union discussions. I think that there will be good, there will be good solves in terms of letting the studios know that we, the entertainment workforce, will not stand for this. I think that does matter. But it's, there are very few ways to actually enforce protecting ourselves against the larger threat right now. So I wonder if there is something that like someone like myself could take back to the communities that I work with, right? So as I mentioned, like in a sense, like, all eyes are on what's happening here. 
And, you know, whether people signed up for this or not, the decisions that will come out of the current writer's strike, um, you know, uh, actor strike, et cetera, will set the tone for any other industry. And, and we were sort of alluding it to it to it earlier. Doctors, nurses, paralegals, lawyers, et cetera. All of these fields keep hearing the same thing. And maybe it'll happen at a different pace, but it will happen. And at some point, like there will be a reckoning and this will set the tone. So I wonder, like, what are the generalizable things that can be taken away so that other people can learn and build and grow? And I think Alex, you touched on a good one, right? Which is like, how would we even action these things, right? Like, how are you going to add? So the same way you said, oh, like a company like Google is never going to comply because no one's going to ever know whose data they're sucking up and whatever. And there's no way of like enforcing that. On the other end, like, let's say you do pass this uh, agreement that says, you know, writers will will never have to edit something written by an AI. How, how are you going to know this? If someone puts a script in front of you and they're like, here, edit the script, like, how are you going to know if that was AI produced? And maybe this is like my naivete and how your industry works, but I just don't understand what the mechanism of accountability and all of this ultimately is like, what is the mechanism of accountability? And Billy, even building ethical AI that points out attribution, like th this is actually a very common fallacy in my world where people they talk about explainability. And the assumption is that explainability will lead to accountability and it, it doesn't. When you're dealing with like, you know, your your equivalent of the big studios is my is my like Googles and Amazons, et cetera. It does not matter because you can say this thing stole my stuff and they're like, oh wow, yeah, that sucks for you. I'm just gonna look at you <laughs> because you because you don't have any rights in that room. And if you don't have any rights in that room, there's no enforceable way to do it. You know, and the thing is some of these companies will say, We we take your data, we do this with it. The only thing you can do is walk away. That's the only thing you can do. What we've seen in the last five months is a tale of three unions. The Writers Guild dug in about uh, AI and succeeded. SAG-AFTRA is currently digging in about AI and will succeed. So that idea of a background artist shows up on day one of a 10-day shoot, gets scanned, gets paid half a day, and their image gets used in perpetuity for the rest of the 10 days, no, that, that's just not going to happen. It puts one third of SAG out of work and therefore destroys the union. It's existential. No, they're not going to agree to that. So put those in one bucket. Now, in the other bucket, you have the DGA. And I've been critical of the DGA on this show. And it's because the DGA, in my view, I can't prove it, but in my view, has now made itself completely irrelevant for the rest of time in terms of labor negotiations. And I'm a member of the DGA, as you are, Alex. But the DGA just flat out doesn't matter anymore because they have no credible strike threat. And therefore, they're going to get what they can. In the room, they'll get the best that they can, but they'll never get better than that. And they won't be able to protect their members. If I were to make a list of the jobs that are most susceptible to AI, since we talk about the genius of AI in terms of its ability to schedule, wouldn't UPMs be like the primary target as a job that is replaceable by AI? Alex, don't you see it that way? Absolutely. I mean, I think that that is going to eat away at a lot of um, scheduling, budgeting, paralegal, legal, uh, that end of the of the work sector across the board. When I interviewed Larry Lessig at Harvard, the first thing he said to me was like, look, the world needs less lawyers and AI is going to take care of that really soon. So it's, I don't think there's any any del delusion on the part of a lot of people about what's going to get eaten. Um, and to be clear, you know, just to reiterate, I think there's a lot of things one can do through negotiation. There's a lot of, because I do think the studios, they absolutely care 
um, and they have to because it's where their workforce is vital to them in that way um, about uh, retaining uh, you know their 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 creative workforce so they continue to make what they want to make. It's just harder to inv- enforce uh, to Roman's point actual sort of specific AI issues and getting someone like a tech company to come to the table and say yes we're going to change what we input or what we output. Those are the fights that are going to have to come going to have to come later. I think there's a great deal we could be doing now. And I think that if we don't fight these fights now, they're going to be harder to fight later. And there's going to, there is going to be a lot of job loss. In, in week five uh, of this show, or for the first time I had on AI, and I asked it point blank, could you be a teacher? And it said, yes. And I said, could you be a CEO? And it said, yes. I said, could you replace Sean Hannity? It said, yes. It went on and on and on. The only thing it thought it couldn't be was a doctor which I thought was interesting. But literally every other job that I threw at it, it believed it could do. If AI does not see the danger in that, and if the people who control AI, being Google or Microsoft, et cetera, if their main mantra is optimization, then I think we are looking at some very, very dangerous results. Uh, that will be directly attributable, hate to use that word, uh, as a result of AI. I want to unpack that a little bit, right? So when you're interacting with this language model, it's not actually thinking. It's not, it doesn't feel anything, right? So when it says, I could do Sean Hannity's job, I could do your job, et cetera, what it is actually doing is a probabilistic word completion. So like, in, and also there are things that the engineers have built into it. So I'm going to guess the reason why it said it couldn't be a doctor has nothing to do with the AI feeling anything, thinking anything, or its capabilities. What these companies do is they're going in and they're building something called guardrails. And what guardrails are, are basically perspectives that it feels that this model should have and should share. So the the model, like the chat GPT you interact with online has had many, many, many layers of not just training and data, but also like human input into how it should say things. And this is actually something I talk about a lot lately. Like there is this fundamental and like broadly existential thing of who gets to be the arbiter of truth. And right now, if these language models are built into everything we interact with, the arbiter of truth are actually the people at these companies who build these guardrails. So my guess is the reason it said it couldn't be a doctor is because there is so much controversy and discussion about whether or not AI can quote replace a doctor that has ha- that, that's been ongoing conversation. Somebody went in and actually hard coded this. So what I'm getting at is like, what is very dangerous and slippery, and it's not your fault, it's actually how these companies want their models to be perceived, is that they're alive and they're making decisions. And there's like very, very like nuanced aspects of how they've created the interactivity and the user design. So for example, when you interact with ChatGPT, the way it does the like three dots, as if like when you're texting, like three dots, like when someone's typing, it's not thinking, it's not typing, it's not doing anything. That was an aesthetic decision to make you believe it's thinking. When what it's doing is doing a probabilistic sentence completion, it's math, it's pure math. So when it's expressing these things, it's not based on much, or it's based on what the human engineers at this company have pretty much told it to say. So all that is to say, there is this talk I gave years ago on this concept I coined called moral outsourcing. And moral outsourcing basically states that by anthropomorphizing AI, by making it act like it's alive and making unilateral decisions, Engineers get to be in the happy space of taking credit for the good things and never being responsible for the bad things. So let's say if there's this negative output of a language model that says something racist, then the engineer's like, oh, wow, I don't 
know how it happened. I just, I just built it. It's making these decisions. Who knows? And then, then they're not responsible. Like, why is this important? Like, more than just like people should take responsibility for what they built, that creates this really sticky legal space. So, like, give a very specific example from image detection. The Uber self-driving car hit a woman in Arizona, and um, ultimately, legally, it was found that the uh, the driver, so the person who was a test driver, was liable, even though the model wasn't tuned to identify somebody who was not walking in a crosswalk. She wasn't walking in a crosswalk, and it was at night. The car didn't see her, and it hit her. The liability fell on, fell on the driver, which is like, and like, and this is where the law becomes at odds with kind of our expectations as people. When I hear self-driving, I hear it is self-driving. Why is it my responsibility if it hits somebody? Legally, they've said, oh, well, you know, the parameters weren't defined, but like, hey, there's a person there. So, you know, it's your fault as the user, but they're not taking responsibility as the company because they've abstracted themselves away from being the intermediary. That's the big thing. People make decisions. These decisions are manifested through technology, but it's still a human being. Can you talk about pattern matching a little bit? Explain what it is, what the dangers are, and in what ways it actually encourages AI to duplicate something that's actually unimportant or silly. In general, if we talk about like a language model, what is it doing? It's taking, like you have said, you've started saying a sentence and it started and it's starting to say a thing the decision tree of all the words that could come next becomes narrowed down. So there's this pile of words that exist in the English language, millions of words, and we can only put them together in a certain number of ways, right? So if I start to, to talk about the Holocaust, the probability of the word Hitler being in some sort of subsequent sentence is fairly high. If I'm talking about baking a cake, the probability of the word Hitler like being in that is probably pretty low. That's a very simplified version of how some of these models work. Pattern matching, like my familiarity with the term pattern matching has actually to do more with how other types of AI systems work, like recommendation systems. So in recommendation systems, like for example, whenever you go on a social media platform or whatever, companies have made essentially a data-driven profile of you. And it's based on like the things you've liked. It's even based on like like where you've hovered and how long you like scrolled and if you paused on something, you know, Netflix famously has one about like how long you've watched a movie or if you watch it for more than 30 seconds, they create these metrics. And in doing that, they kind of create a persona about you. And like my understanding of the term pattern matching, and maybe I'm thinking of something different, comes more from this world of when you get targeted media from AI, they've created like this pattern of who you are based on the data you've provided. They make these assumptions about you and that they match that to content that is also liked by people who they see as being like you. Now that can suffer from a lot of very problematic assumptions in particular, like gender, race, like when we fall back to what Alex was saying earlier, where there are these weird stereotypes that come in. All right. So you obviously never met my grandmother, may she rest in peace, who absolutely could have woven the word Hitler into a conversation about baking a cake. Tell me what backpropagation is and, and what, uh, what the dangers of it are. Backpropagation is just a way it adjusts a neural network's parameters by like fitting it to some functional form. It's like regressing to the mean, which means like it takes the average thing. And to be fair, from a mathematical perspective, that's a very obvious thing to do because it is the thing that would be correct for the most number of cases or people, et cetera. It's the average, right? But when you think about what this means when applied to people and humanity, right? 
do we want everything we produce to exist at some sort of like mean at like the average thing like we we especially people who are creative types you push the envelope of you know what we talk about as human beings you focus on the edge cases so what you don't want is like something that's this mashup of like you know the most vanilla average you know um uh, uncontroversial topic thing idea etc so like back propagation is just a way of neural networks fixing themselves essentially and mathematically uh, but interestingly the manifestation that and a lot of like functional forms being chosen and how algorithms work has the effect of treating people like the median expectation of what should come from them right and I'll, I'll give you a very specific example of how this could be dangerous um you know, ad targeting platforms exist on like social media, especially people talk about the Facebook one quite a bit and people get targeted with ads um, and for jobs. And, you know, the kinds of jobs you maybe get targeted for will end up being a function of the average kind of job someone like you has. Uh, so what does that mean for someone who is a low income black person, you know, and like their zip code is a part like, in Compton versus like an affluent white male who lives in Greenwich, Connecticut. And is that fair, right? The one, one that I actually saw, so a lot of people have been looking at Facebook ad targeting platforms for a while. And one interesting thing that people have noted is that the salary ranges can change. Actually, very specifically, I, I work with this really phenomenal student, this woman, Sarah Kingsley. She's a red teamer and she's been red teaming for uh, multiple different organizations. And she specifically was looking at how AI generated job ads, if you change who they're targeted for, will actually change what qualities it's looking for, what it emphasizes, and what the salary ranges. So this is the effect, like, how does back propagation manifest itself in the real world? That's it. And how that's manifests itself in, in our industry, which already has issues, you know, the workforce being quantified um, and the expectation for who can do what and what we, you know, not to get political, but it is with this stuff. What we've seen with the diversity initiatives, backlash against those, the Me Too era, some of the backlash against those, some of the, the, the attempts over the last 20 years for the labor force to become more equal, uh, there has been pushback. And so when you, when you kind of co-join uh, very human, because all of these tools are human anyway, the sort of very human biases and, and devaluing of the workforce with technologies that are also um, very good at doing that themselves inherently, that's where some of the problems lie, I think. And I think that's where some of the dangers lie uh, moving forward in terms of who is going to get protected within our industry, who even gets to stay in our industry. And like, what does our industry even look like in 10 years? Like who will be able to afford to still be filmmakers? Like how, how classist, like what are the sort of gender, class, race, ethnic parameters that are, are going to be, allow you to monetize enough to be able to stay in this workforce, no matter what we negotiate around AI or the next uh, in this round of negotiations. I think that's sort of the bigger, are we really needing to move towards a system that is way more different than we can even imagine right now in order for there to be arts that we want to make as opposed to content and equality for people to be able to work you know, and earn a living wage within that world of making art. And I think that that sounds heady, but I think it really is at the root of a lot of the fight that's going on right now between the corporations and the workforce. It is also worth noting that plenty of people have pointed out, like, well, the existing systems are pretty broken, too. And as Alex has said, like, we have active movements to continue to exclude 
certain groups of people simply for speaking up and trying to make more equal footing. And then back to Billy, like what you said, the very top of it, right? Like balancing this in-between space of like the potential and possibility, because it is a very like what we want to believe in is this dream that artificial intelligence can take all this data and like give us quantitatively driven, like objective and good outputs, right? Versus like what we are seeing, which is, oh, it's just kind of manifesting what we've seen happen before. And like negotiating what that middle world is, where we've made that vision possible, but we're balancing it with, you know, human intuition and the role of human beings in shaping and making things good. What's so fascinating about technology, I think one, one of the slowest things that our very capitalistic economic structure has failed to catch up with is what technology enables is near infinite growth at very, very little expense, right? So in the first industrial revolution, if you wanted to build a factory, you had to buy land and you had to build a thing and it was like, like very capital intensive, right? We do not live in that world. So we're drowning in media, we're drowning in monetizable content. And what we haven't created are good institutions by which this monetization can be realized and captured and not in like a cynical way, not in a way in which like only Warner Brothers is making money or only Google is making money, but it's like there is a possibility of redistribution, right? Um, and then to, to your point about, you know, what's going to happen in the next year, I'm going to be perfectly blunt. It's going to be an election year. Nothing's going to happen. Nothing happens in an I say this as a political scientist, my PhD is in American politics. Things do not happen in an election year because everyone's running for re-election. So from Biden on down, anybody up for re-election is going to be very, very, very risk averse. They're going to talk the talking points that resonate with the people who will vote for them and they'll be interested in nothing else. And that is just politics. Like that is how it's worked. So I I, I wonder if there is a way to capture the populist narrative such that it behooves Joe Biden or whoever else to support this movement, that's the only way it's happening. And specifically like target their voter base. That is the only way any movement's going to happen in election year. Okay. We are going to leave it there. Uh, again, what a privilege uh, to be able to talk to you two. You're both so goddamn smart. I know I learned a lot. Thank you for being with me. Thank you, Billy. Thanks. By the time World War I ended, Europe had been devastated. The war had left 20 million dead and another 21 million injured. It had been mechanized slaughter. The victors in that war, the Allies, now gathered at the Palace of Versailles in France to craft a treaty that would officially end the conflict. The negotiations lasted six months, not because a defeated Germany was pushing for better terms. Germany wasn't even allowed in the room. No, the talks lasted six months because the Allies, yes, an alliance, all had different ideas about what the treaty should look like. In fact, the disagreements ran so deep that the treaty was never ratified by the United States Congress. We negotiated our own separate deal with Germany, and the rest of Germany's allies negotiated their own deals too. But Germany was stuck and forced to agree to terms that ultimately led Europe on a direct route to World War II, which would see the deaths of 75 million people. Some negotiations, it turns out, just lead to greater devastation down the line. Today, we learned more about AI, its costs, and its risks. SAG needs to get a good outcome here. It needs to protect its members. Failure on this would force us all to fight this war all over again three years from now and another three years after that. Success would mean the thing that Hollywood and all the world craves, a happy ending. The kind that, unlike William Hurt winding up with Holly Hunter, we can actually believe in. I want to thank my brilliant guests and my tireless producer, Hannah Baker. Please join us next week when our guests will be Sergeant York, General Blackjack Pershing, and the Red Baron. This is Strike Talk.
It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me. And you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.